Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport, and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance, and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, Challenges That Change Us community. Welcome back for another week. I hope you're having a good day so far. Perhaps you are out walking, maybe you're cooking dinner or doing some chores around the house with your headphones in. No matter where you are in the world today, I hope it's a good day for you. I'm looking forward to introducing you to Josh Marshall, who has a very interesting story. Josh was diagnosed with MS at 23. He shares with us what he first noticed and how he knew something was wrong and what happened next. We go on to talk about the horrific day he encountered later in life with a drunk driver on the road. This incident resulted in Josh needing a wheelchair to function on a daily basis. His story is one of resilience and determination. He is moving mountains in this country in the disability space. He spends his days working out how he can improve the life of others around him and those coming through the ranks after him. With a background in nursing and education, he has multiple degrees and is the founder of Inclusion Access. Josh has had times he has had chronic debilitating pain, times where his legs feel like lead weights, times where the fatigue is unbearable, times when many of the other now permanent changes seem too much to manage and times of depression and grief. Yet he spends his days in service of others. He wants access to be an everyday thing. That wheelchair accessibility is not the exception, that it becomes the norm. Let me introduce you to the man himself, Josh Marshall. Welcome, Josh, to Challenges That Change Us. It's great to have you here today. G'day, Ali. Good to be here. Josh, I love to start every interview with asking, what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? All right. Well, this is that's quite a funny question, actually. I grew up in uh, in a country town called Kingaroy. Probably a lot of people have heard of Kingaroy. We had a, a large... Uh, well, a large hobby farm, and we had a goat called George. Now, George was a monster goat. He was really tall. He's about a metre and a half tall. Now, that's pretty big for a goat. He had big antlers and, you know, he was quite scary to look at. Now, I would align myself with George. George was so pleasant. He was so loving, so much so that if you leave the door open, you'll come in the house. I'd get home after school in these days and you'd be laying on the couch. (laughs) <laughs> so, George was pretty happy to be one of the humans. So, he was really loving. He'd love a pat. He'd walk with you wherever you went. And, you know, it, it was good to have him around. Uh, so much so that I'd actually want to ride George and he would accept that. 
He was on his big goat. He'd accept me jumping on his back as a kid. Issue with George is he he was very naughty. He loved being your mate. He loved helping you. But at the same time, he'd pull my uh, my parents' unmentionables off the line or he would rip out our shrubs from around the house or he'd do all that sort of stuff. And we kept thinking goat uh, curry might be a nice uh, thing to eat at this stage. <laughs> um, but George, I love George. I used to walk home from uh, walk home from the bus, which is about a kilometre from where we lived. And we had a few neighbours that lived around us, and one house in particular had a fella that was the same age as me that was a little bit rough, and he used to give me a bit of a hard time. So one day I asked my mother, who was home, to walk down the property with George and meet me at the end of the property, which was close to that kilometre away. And so I had George, and this bloke was, was having a go at me, and I, I, would, I just started running at this bloke, just running, knowing that George would run. He put his head down, and he charged. And this boy is like, well, he never picked me again. He's like, he's got a big go <laughs> that is not going to have him picking him again. So George was fun, but he was very loving, and he wanted to help. He wasn't always the most helpful. But he wanted to help, and that's why I aligned myself <laughs> to him, just because he wanted to be around people. He was, I'd say, if an animal could be an extrovert, that was George. He uh, wanted to be involved in everything. I'm still trying to get over the size of the goat and that he's on your couch inside the house. <laughs> yeah. You actually ripped a chunk out of the couch and hear the parents then. They weren't very happy. How long did you have George for? Oh, we only had him for about maybe a year, so he, we didn't get him as a little a little goat. He was um, a neighbour's goat, actually, and they moved into town and they obviously couldn't take the goat with him, so they asked if we would take over the care of George. Or he take over the care of you by the sounds of it. That was probably more, yeah, more what happened. So, yeah, we said, yeah, of course, we'll take George. No worries. We had space. We had cows and we had a spare small field that nothing was in, so George fit perfectly in there. And like I said, all in all, he was great, but he was a big goat. He could jump over fences. He could do whatever he wanted to do. That sounds just like you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, that could be a negative too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to hear all about it today, aren't we? We're going to hear all the colours of the rainbow because, Josh, we've brought you on today. There's going to be a few facets of this interview. There's the initial beginning part of the story around your nursing career and the MS and then we'll be chatting a little bit later around the car accident and then how that's led you to where you are today. So to begin with, can we start back at, you know, around 2007 when you were first diagnosed with MS? Yeah, sure, sure. So I was a career nurse at this stage, obviously. I was only 23 or 22. I put all my effort into studying. I'd I'd actually done two masters of nursing on top of a nursing degree. So and that's not unusual. Uh, When somebody's wanted to climb the nursing ladder, you really, although it's not recognised for the uh, the education that you focus on, you kind of need that education to climb the ladder. So one master's, I was in ICU actually. So one master's was in critical care, uh, being ICU and emergency, and the other one was in clinical management. So it was understanding how hospitals operate and 
is a little bit shy of an MDA, I suppose, but a very health-focused, massive business uh, administration. Yeah, so I was I was a career nurse and I was loving what I was doing. I was climbing the ladder. At this stage, I'd actually started acting up as the nurse unit manager and it was a very large hospital I was at in Brisbane. So that was quite a big thing for a young bloke like myself to be. Did you say at 24? Yeah, 23, yeah. Wow. So it was quite unusual to be taken into this role, but it was only a short-term acting role. And I think the director of nursing was happy to give the people they saw coming wanting to to follow this career pathway, uh, that situation. I actually work with. I've got a good mate. He's one of my uh, one of my uh, groomsmen at my wedding. Actually, he is the same age as I am. He started the same time as I am. He is now the director of nursing of two, so one that's owned by the one company, but two hospitals in Sydney. So, and he's the same age as I am now. So, obviously, I'm nearly 40 now. I was going to say, you know, 20, 28 now. You look 28. <laughs> yeah, 40 now. But he um, jumped into management probably 10 years back. So, when people have that drive in nursing, that's one good thing that they will see. So, a lot of the management will, will actually recognize that people are coming wanting to do this role. It's a challenging role trying to manage a whole ward when you're managing nurses and doctors and payroll and, you know, food serve, all that stuff. So I was lucky enough to be given this for only six months, but it taught me that I did not want to be a manager. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I'm, I love people. I don't like people managing. I think there's two different people. I like leadership. Now, a nursing manager is not a nursing leader, and that's the indiscrepancy. I would want it to be a leader the head of my field and teach people nursing. So, yeah, later in my career, I went into nurse education and for about 10 years, actually, I was a nurse educator. But that's later in the career. So, what happened, I was working at this hospital and as I'm sure listeners would realise, in the main major city, uh, there's not very good parking at hospitals. So, I had to park about a kilometre away at this stage as well from work. So I would park my car, and that wasn't an issue. I, I didn't care walking. I, I thought it was quite quite a nice thing to do. And I'd walk to work, and I'd walk back to the car afterwards. But then all of a sudden, one day I started to walk, and I was dragging my feet thinking, what's going on? Dragging my feet and falling over myself, or didn't actually fall over, but you, know, you get what I mean, tripping over a bit. I think, what's going on? I uh, went and spoke to one of our registrars, so junior doctors at the hospital, and they kind of just blew it off and said, oh, it's probably nothing. It's probably just, you know, sore muscles or whatever. I used to work into the gym a lot then, and this doctor knew this, and they just blew it off. I said, don't worry about it. But it didn't settle. Anyway, I went overseas. I went on a Kentucky tour of all things, as most at this age, probably 23, 24-year-olds do. And I fell up the stairs of the Eiffel Tower, probably every second stair. And then I got to the bottom and I had to walk to the Arc de Triomphe with my group of Kentucky mates. And there's a lot of cobblestone in, uh, in France, in Paris. And I was tripping over every second step I took. Obviously, on a Kentucky tour, you probably don't sleep as much as you should because you're, you know, it's quite exciting. So I was probably tired and fatigued and tripping over everywhere. I got home, 
back to Australia and I went and seeked more advice. And CT's negative, blood tests negative, no issue. So I had to fight actually for an MRI and I had to fight, fight, fight. Finally, I managed to convince the doctor to give me an MRI and um, that obviously diagnosed MS. But it was in my own name. So this doctor was a doctor I work with, a specialist that could organize this in my name, as in the results come to my email address and obviously to his email address too, being the doctor that organized it. But so my own result come to me and I remember one day sitting at work and I read this result that said most likely MS. And I was only 24 and oh, I didn't even know if I was nearly 24. But I was not in a very good place. I was unmarried. I was, my career was in, embedded at this stage. I was pretty upset with this. So I went bush, actually. I uh, packed up. And when you work in a small, it was a small, it was a big hospital. But when you work in a hospital, everybody around me could see that I was quite upset with this result. So it spread like wildfire throughout where I was that I've got MS. And everybody was asking me about it, and I was sick of talking about it. So I decided to go rural. So I jumped into the rural relief program as a nurse and went bush. For a couple of years, actually, I played all around up north around Cairns, and I, you know, all, all through the state, I moved around. It was really good. I learned a lot. But the, one of the best things that happens is I actually met my wife who was at one of these rural hospitals. She was a young intern at this stage, a young medical intern, and I was acting again as a manager. Not that I – well, I said I'd never do it again, but I was kind of coached into uh, doing this role for a short term. And I met my wife in doing that role. I had to orientate her to the ward when she came out as a young doctor. And oh, this was a very small hospital at the time, as in you know, a 20-bed hospital, a tiny hospital compared to – you know, the 400-bed hospital in Brisbane I was at. So I got to know her and we went and had lunch together and next thing you know, we got married and had kids. And there was some time in the middle that I don't really remember. (laughs) You know, thinking as I was listening to you, thinking about receiving that, there were so many parts of that, receiving that email, being on your own and seeing that information as a 24-year-old man and I also imagine back then there wasn't near as much awareness around MS as what there is now. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for me is through my training, I worked at a nursing home to pay my way through uni when I was training to be a registered nurse in the first place. And I had a young, when I say young, like a 40-year-old patient, so young in comparison to other people in the nursing home who had MS, and but she had never taken any medical I suppose, support from a pharmaceutical point of view or from rehab physios and exercise physiologists or even even appropriate like anti-inflammatory diets or daily exercise. And we can talk about that soon because I make sure I exercise daily. I won't eat inflammatory foods. I will take my drugs religiously. Now, the fact is I'm 40 now and I haven't – I'm a wheelchair user. However, I'm not in a nursing home in a nursing home bed. And my neurologist said that to me just recently, that if I didn't live the lifestyle I'm living now, and I do it because I have young kids and a wife, and I need need to consider their future too, 
But she said if you didn't live like that, she thinks I probably would be in a nursing home bed and looking at my MRIs and looking at, you know, it's now been, it's, you know, going on nearly 20 years, you know, it's now been 17, 18 years. And she said this is the time that people would usually, if they didn't support their, their living, they would be in a nursing home. So obviously when I first got diagnosed, I directly thought about this person. And thought, oh no, is that what I'm going to be? Which scared me so much, so that no, there's no way I was giving up the gym. The only thing I gave up was alcohol, and I was stupid. I used to smoke cigarettes back then, as most young stupid nurses do. But I gave up those lifestyle things, alcohol and cigarettes, to concentrate on my health and well-being. And I think that's paid dividends. Yeah, and it, saying it and doing it is completely different because you can intellectually be like, right, I'm going to stop all the things that I know are not going to help me on my journey. I'm going to start the things that are, but you still have to have the discipline and you still have to do the work and you still have to be committed to that process. Like you say it so casually, but I can't imagine as a 24-year-old guy being like, all right, I'm giving up drinking and I'm giving up smoking. You know, most of your friends and people in your world probably were still drinking and smoking at that time. Yeah, but I just, I suppose I just have to distance myself from some of my close mates that wouldn't support those lifestyle choices. But I don't want to say I'm a disciplined person because I'm not. I'm not disciplined at all. I'm quite the opposite. I get caught on bandwagons all the time with things I read or do or conspiracy, whatever. But I suppose I had been going to the gym daily since I was 14. So for the last last 10 years, I had been into the gym daily. So that was not a new thing to me. And I wasn't a big drinker, so not drinking much was not a big thing to me. And I really couldn't afford to smoke and I knew how bad it was. So I was wanting to give up anyway. So it was just kind of the, you know, I was at the end of the line where, all right, I have to give these things up. I don't have a choice and I threw it in. And that's just what happened. I didn't really have an option, I didn't fear. And I wasn't going to be like this lady I, I nurse who's no longer with us, but I wasn't going to be like her. I thought, no, that's it. It's time. And Josh, I imagine in the 18 years that you've been living with MS, a lot would have changed and there would have been a lot of processing through that journey. How's it sitting with you at the moment? Yeah, okay. So after diagnosis, I suppose I had to seek a lot of self-help. I read a lot of books. I attended a lot of, you know, self-help type courses. I've done I've done a lot in my time anyway, anyway, throughout Australia. And one thing I'd learned is it's not the challenge that defines us, it's the challenge that helps direct us. So it's not the challenges that life actually throws in front of us, it's how we adapt to that challenge. We all in our life will live with some level of impairment at some stage, and that will lead us to why I do what I do now. And whether the impairment's temporary, you've broken a leg or, or whatever, or that impairment's permanent and you end up being disabled, everybody's going to be impaired at some stage. It's the way they bounce back from that impairment. And I think it's about mindset. It's about understanding that life is so much more than the disability you have been given. Life is like a pack of cards. It's like playing a game of poker. You can't help the cards are going to deal you. But gee, I can pull the good face. Kenny Rogers. 
I can pull that face. And everyone, I bluff everyone. They think I'm just fine. I might go home and be a bit sad. And But we all get blue. And just remember that. Depression is not getting blue. We all get blue from time to time, especially those living with disability or with the challenge. Doesn't mean we're depressed. It means we're blue. Get through it. Put your feet on the on the ground every day and move on. Mm. And how do you move forwards in that space? You know, once you're starting to be able to have that conversation inside your head, because that's that moving the mindset piece, isn't it? That's trying to change the lens that we're viewing the situation in yeah. or changing you know, our perception of the situation. But how do you actually go and take steps after that? Do you just count down, three, two, one, I'm going to go? Or do you work out a bite-sized piece you can chew? Or how do you actually get to action off that mindset shift? Okay, so I'm a list writer as well. So every afternoon before bed, I write my list of what I have to do the next day. And it's actually quite busy at the moment. And I know we'll talk about it soon. So when I do wake up and I don't feel able, yeah, I pray a lot. but then. The first thing I do is I go, I've got a home gym now. I'll go and I'll work out for an hour and that'll just clear my mind and then I move on with my day. I don't dwell on the things that's going to hold me back because things are going to hold every one of us back if we allow ourselves to dwell on that. So just get over it and just move forward. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. I know that from people listening, but just don't dwell on and just put the next foot forward, just move forward. Mm. Yeah, what you said there, it's like focus on the things that move us forward, not the things that are holding us back. Well, that's exactly right. Focus on what we can achieve. Mm. There's no use focusing on what we can't achieve because we're not going to achieve them. No, no. And we do. We give so much energy and time to things that we can't change. All of us can fall into that rut. Do you know, and this is coming back from nursing days, but the biggest thing that causes depression in our life, the biggest thing that causes ill thought and mental health issues, would you believe, is brain chatter and listening to our brain chatter and believing our brain chatter. Our brain is going to always tell us we can't do it. It's time to not listen to that rubbish and tell your brain to pull its head out Move forward. You know, chatter will slow us down. Don't let chatter slow us down. Move forward. It's interesting you say that. I had one of our um, audience reach out to me this week, two days ago actually, and just ask, Als, can you do an episode on the brain chatter? He said, one thing I've noticed consistent throughout all the episodes is the language that people have inside their head and the story that we tell ourselves every day. And he said, I'd really love to know a little bit more about that, about how to understand what we're telling ourselves and then what to do with it once you recognise that's happening. Well, have you ever read a book yourself, Ali, called The Secret? I've heard of it. I actually haven't read it yet. It's a good book to read. Now, just, just a quick synopsis of what that book's about. It's about what you believe in, how you invite your belief into your life. So if you wake up every day, it's like having a mantra. If you believe that you're going to be successful in your job, you believe that without it even happening and you actually plan in your own head how that's going to happen. Now, how does that make a difference? It's because you're training your subconscious mind to act and to feel and to be that person that you're not yet. So your conscious decisions are often made through the subconscious thought process. So you actually train your subconscious mind. Now, I'm thinking like this. So your conscious decisions become subconscious 
decisions. That's what the secret's about. And I, I brought, I took that on twenty years ago in the book I'm out, twenty five years ago. I've loved that, and that's that's what I feel that it helps get over that brain chatter because that's going against what I just said. No, no, you tell yourself you have a mantra. I am good enough. I am able. I am going to succeed. You know, disability is not going to hold me back. Or this bloody world we live in is not going to hold me back. I'm going to move forward with my head held high, my shoulders pulled back and a smile on my face, and I will achieve it. Mm. It's so powerful and I think it's one of the gifts that you get from adversity is when you've been able to practice that and it's like a muscle. The more you practice, believe it or not, the easier it does get. That's right. I'm the same as you, Josh. I have very clear sentences inside my head that I just go to because I know they work for me. They do. And I'm a huge believer in a mantra. I put a mantra, different ones all the time, and I think my wife thinks I'm nuts. But I'll put it on the mirror in our ensuite, you know, for today. And the, and the mantra is currently like move forward, you will achieve. Because what I'm trying to achieve, and I'll get to this, is actually becoming very, very challenging. But my mantra is just move forward or believe in what we're going to achieve. Now, I'll say that to myself five times in the morning. So everything I do in the day is going to be working towards that level of achievement. Well, it's anchoring yourself and getting focused on what you want to achieve. By, by having that conversation in your head, you're, it's like you said, two feet on the ground, you're anchoring and grounding yourself ready to go into the next stage or the next chapter or the next hour with that intention. That's exactly right. And that, that leads back to, you know, the people you, you hang around with or the the habits you decide to, you know, dwell in or become part of. Like you could sit there and, and I've had a lot of patients. I, I did a lot in the end of my career after I could no longer educate as well. It was a bit hard sometimes to walk around with mannequins for CPR. Or I used to teach CPR to a lot of uh, hospital staff and that kind of stuff back in the day. It's hard me doing that. So I moved into a bariatric, so large people, a bariatric pathway for the hospital. So we developed a pathway in how to actually best assist patients that are larger than a BMI of 40, so large people. And I suppose a lot of these people would say to me, I can't give up eating or I can't give up that snack or I can't give up the two liters of cocoa with breakfast or whatever because that's their habit or I can't give up smoking because of their habit. But once you actually understand that, no, no, you don't let the habit define you. You define the habit. You take control. Your brain takes control of what you're trying to achieve. And once you realize that, that you're, you're in control, your habit is not in control, what you want to do is not in control, but your brain's in control, that's when you'll make a difference. Mm. It's very wise words. But this is not the end of your story, Josh. We are far from the end of your story. <laughs> I feel like I could take all day. <laughs> yes. Who wants a six-hour podcast here? <laughs> Okay, guys, just uh, get ready for it. We're going to go for another couple of hours. No, but seriously, because there's so much, you know, you really have, you really have had some massive balls of adversity thrown your way. And one of them was also the car accident. So this was after you'd been diagnosed with MS? That's right. So I had an accident. I was driving uh, between where I live now and the main city. And I went through, it was very, very dark. And then all of a sudden, this car went flying past me, 
they actually ended up rolling their car and when I got to them, they were on their roof. Now, people had seen that and so and they were in a lit up area. And the reason I say that is my eyes had not yet fully adjusted to what was going on. That happens when you drive, obviously. There's people on the side of the road waving me down, but I had no idea what they were doing. I saw them wave me down. I'm too busy looking at them to notice the car that was on the street in front of me. So I swerved around the car. I hit into the brick wall next to me, and the car flipped and hit the other side. So both front and back, I rode the car up, but was totally crushed up. Now, the issue with that is I broke my leg pretty badly. And I was put in a wheelchair, the orthopedic surgeon. See, I had a car accident as well. I was around however as a kid and I pushed by in King of Royals. And I was a magpie kid. A magpie was sweeping me. Kids, listen to your parents. My uh, mother said, don't go to the pool. I went anyway. I was 12 years old. And on the way home, I was swooped by a magpie. I rode down the road and I was run over as a kid. And that was pretty bad. So my leg was very damaged from that. So this was later in my life. I had, another, I had a car accident this time, not run over in a push by, but my leg was pretty badly damaged. So the orthopedic surgeon said, look, it is so bad, I will fix it, but if you break it again, I won't be able to do anything about it. So he put me in a wheelchair for about six months, and that was why I'm in a wheelchair still. Uh, I can walk a little bit. I can walk with crutches, and I can even take a couple of steps without – assistance, but I would not go to work. I would not carry anything. I wouldn't do that. Uh, it's not safe. But so I was in a wheelchair. I lost my proprioception. So what that is is the feeling at the bottom of my feet to know where the floor is. And that's very important in walking. It tells your brain, all right, take the next step now. Take the next And it helps you walk. It helps you. all that. People don't realize how important that is. But I lost that appropriate reception. And unfortunately, the orthopedic surgeon did not know. He obviously knew what MS, but he did not consider me being in a wheelchair for six months what that may mean in my long, long-term long like livability. And, and that's fine. Look, I don't mind being in a wheelchair. It's I'm sitting down all the time. I never have to look for a seat. There are good sides to it. Sometimes it's a pain in the bum when I want to go and coach my son's soccer team I do assistance coach, assistant coach, but I still can't get out there and run around with the kids because I can't push myself on grass that quick. There are things I can't do, but there are people there to help me do them. Like there are coaches that can, you know, they're not going to ask me to coach because they know I can't do it. But there are other things that are different to what I normally would have done or would do if I wasn't in a wheelchair. But it's not the end of the world. It's just, it's, the challenge that changes the way we do life as your podcast. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> got it in. Josh, I was thinking then though as you're talking, you didn't mention the driver at the time had been drinking, correct? Yeah, yeah. He was drunk actually. And so he rolled his car. He was street racing and he rolled his car. He was okay and that's because he was drunk. He was so limber because he was drunk that he was – his car was on his roof but he was okay except the fact that he lost his license and whatnot. But, yeah, he was he was drink driving. I wrote in one of our um, Facebook posts the other day that you can get bitter or you can get better, and listening to you, that just keeps coming across my mind because I'm like there are so many elements in your story where you're in that fork of the road, like having an accident because of someone that had been drinking when you already had MS that now means that you live your life in the wheelchair – 
that's one of those forks where I can imagine it would have been very easier to get bitter. But what's it going to achieve, Ellie? I know, I know, but I still am just blown away that listening to you and and how positive you are about life and how you're able to flip that mindset. Well, that would be a big belief thing, thing of me too. I know that my life on this earth is so short in our eternal existence that it's not really a big thing to me. As in, yeah, I'm in a wheelchair now. Who cares? I could get bitter, and I think I did get a bit bitter in the grieving process. When I first realized I'm going to stay in a wheelchair now, I can't get out. I went through the denial. I went through the grief. I went through the anger, and I did get angry at him. But I'm sure he was up. I didn't even talk to him. I didn't even know his name. I don't even know where he is. don't know who he is. But I don't know how that anger and resentment that I hold is going to be beneficial to my long you know, longevity of trying to trying to live a, a peaceful life. It's like that old saying that, you know, when you – I always imagine people standing at the bench in the kitchen and they're like so angry at someone and they're holding the coffee cup and all they're thinking about is how pissed off they are about what that person did, the behaviour of the other person. It's like they can't hear you. <laughs> exactly. Like you're carrying that anger. That person, they can't hear you right now. They're, they're off doing their own thing in their world and you're the only one that's suffering in that moment because we're holding on to – this it, And it, we're not saying, and this is something I wanted to ask you about, Josh, we're not saying to compress it. Like you said that earlier, like you need to address the feelings and particularly when you talk about grief, it's you're not saying not to go through the grief process. No, go through it, but it's, it's the mindset that you take through it. When you understand it's part of the process, that anger is part of the process, but that's a usual part of the process. It's not abnormal. And being angry is not actually going to help. It helps you get through it a lot quicker. You know, I grew up in a lot of in a broken household, and as we were very poor and we didn't have a lot at some stage, and I could have been very angry. But again, it's using the adversity to actually grow who you are as a person, and using anger to grow. Don't use anger to be angry at them. But use it anger and say, all right, well, there's no way I'm going to do this myself or allow my kids to do this because I know the outcome of it. And again, because I'm in a wheelchair, I met my wife. Well, no, that was MS and maybe met my wife. I left work because I was in a wheelchair. But let's look at the other side. Since I left nursing, I started a business that I'm very, very proud and passionate about. That would never be the case. I could not have achieved this working for the government. Not a million years. There's always good. Every single bad situation has a silver lining. You just have to look for it. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. 
For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance, and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And I do want to go into what you're doing now, but before we do, I do have a couple of questions. So one of them was you mentioned quite early on around the self-help books that you did and the self-help courses. And I sometimes think that is a way that people can tap into what we're talking about. You know, if you're listening today and you're like, I can hear what you guys are saying, but how do I do it? Like, what's the next step? Or how am I going to integrate this into my world today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? And I was going to ask you, Josh, whether that, do you think that the self-help work that you did initially set you up for a little bit more ability to deal with this adversities that came at you? It did help me understand more, not deal with more. I'm going to be honest, and there's no shame in being honest about this. Well, I still see a counsellor every second week, even to today. And that's because I'm living with a chronic disease. That, and when business is not going the way it's anticipated or when I know my marriage isn't going the way for some dumb reason my brain tells me it should go or when my kids are defiant and I can't, oh, I'm not going to discipline the way I was disciplined. So... You know, I do see counsellor to get through this. And I think that's really important to realise that everybody struggles with with this stuff. You're not alone. And talk about it. And that's why I see counsellor to just talk it through. Not that they give me a lot of coping mechanism, but it's more just getting it off my chest. And, and that's what I do. And that's why it's important because it helps me self-regulate, I suppose, when I've actually outwardly spoken about this stuff. But your question was what I did previously that it helped the situation. Not really. Books are only books. They're only bits of paper. And no, not really. I listen to podcasts about this stuff too. Not really. What's more helpful is to hear other people's stories and hear how they cope through their adversity. Having a book tell you how to cope with it is not going to help you cope with it. But it's good to know why they're telling how to cope with it because they've gone through it themselves. That's what I like about the books. Oh, I love reading my autobiographies because they're often – I read Richard Branson's autobiography, for instance. He's got a motto in life that screw it, let's do it. Now, why is that? Because he was pushed down so much as a child and as an adolescent that if he didn't just move forward and have that mindset of screw it, let's do it, he wouldn't have achieved near what he achieved now. So it's hearing reading his autobiography is interesting, but it's hearing his backstory that's more interesting. And that's what I'm after. Mm. And that's why we've done challenges that change us for the same reason. It's that connecting through story. That's right. And not every story will resonate, but if you can find aspects of someone's story or feel more connected or feel less alone or find another tool to put in your toolbox, yeah. then it's absolutely worth having the conversation because not any single one of us are the same and not any single one situation is the same, but there can be common themes, common threads, common strategies that people can use. That's right. Mm. And, Josh, I can imagine that that rehab was pretty intensive. What was it like for you? Um, that was one of the times in my life that I kind of nearly did give up a few times. Rehab is painful. Rehab was persistent. Rehab was something that you didn't want to have to do every day, but you had to do every day. And I suppose 
I still to today see a physio monthly, an exercise physiologist second weekly. I still see a PT every week to try and work on these exercises. And like I said, I work out every day except the weekend, so it's only five days a week, but doing some level of rehab. Now, I don't work out for hours anymore. I might do 45 minutes with a lot of breaks. I might go for an hour, but you, you know, you, I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. The rehab process was challenging. And the challenge come down to doing stuff that I usually wouldn't do. The hardest part for me was being a young, fit person that went to the gym every day and I was actually quite strong. I had big arms, big chest. I was pretty proud of my physique and having that stripped away. And not only was that stripped away, but then went the license and then went the jobs and then went the, you know, everything. Like bit by bit by bit, things were stripped away. But that's when you stop and think to yourself, like that I could have fallen away. But if you don't take control of your situation and you don't actually find a new norm, but then still work towards what you can achieve, I think it would be easy to get really down and potentially depressed and slip away. I think it's very relevant and important to live with what you have been given to live with what your abilities are today and work the best you can. And that's what rehab made me do is, all right, rehab is making me be able to walk again. That would not have happened, in other words. Not that I can walk very well, but I can still walk. I can still get up and get in the shower and stuff. I mean, imagine if I couldn't do that. That would be a pain in the bum. But that's the importance of rehab, and I think people do need to to realize it's there for a reason. Rehab is very important. It's got a purpose, and we do need to align to that purpose. We can't do it without assistance. We do need somebody that knows more than us. And unless you're a physio or an EP or, or a doctor that understands, and not even doctors would understand necessarily what a physio would do, for instance, unless you actually understand the actual part of your body that person's working on, you're not going to achieve results. And that's why it's important to lean into other people and just be lucky we live in the country and in the situation that we can do that. Mm. And that's that common thread I'm hearing throughout this whole episode is really the gratitude piece, looking at what you do have and not what you've lost or what you don't have. And as you said, gratitude, being grateful for what you still do have. I mean, I can't run around the backyard with my kids, but I still have kids. I can't clean this house the way I wish I could for my wife, but I still have a wife. I can't go to work every day, but I've started my own business. It's a not-for-profit, the charity. I mean, I don't make money from it. I'm a volunteer, but I still have a purpose. And a job is more than a job. It's a purpose. And it's important to be grateful for those things. Because a lot of people won't have that opportunity. There's some pretty powerful words right there, Josh. Oh, it's the way you have to live, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. But I just, yeah, I think we can all take a leaf out of your book with that. And that's, I talked a little bit on my podcast about post-traumatic growth. You know, how do we make the most out of really shitty situations? And, and you know, that's what I'm hearing through throughout this interview. But let's talk about inclusion access because this is pretty incredible. Where you are now and what you're doing, yes, it's come out of everything you've been through. Maybe your life might have looked different had you not been through all of this. But what you're doing right now, 
is incredible. Some days, some days. <laughs> <laughs> Today, not so much. <laughs> Depends Tough on the day. day at the office. <laughs> Tell us about inclusion access. All right. So I went to a wheelchair about eight years ago post that accident I had. I soon after, so I did I did drive for a bit longer with hand controls, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have a car now. I don't drive now. I don't feel I'm safe enough to be on the road with other people and I need to put other people's safety first. But anyway... I left uh, nursing and I wanted to take my family away on a holiday. I was in a wheelchair. We wanted to go up north and I won't name and shame where we went, but we wanted to go up north and we went to this uh, unit. Now, I'm ringing around trying to find something accessible, not having to have done this before. I finally, so everywhere that said they're accessible online, we're booked out. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. I finally I got in contact with the unit and I said, do you have anything accessible left? They did, but it was only the penthouse. That's the only accessible unit they can they had was a penthouse. And just so you know, they can't do that. That's illegal. It's important that the penthouse does have accessibility, but not the only unit they have accessible being the penthouse because, you know, they're saying you have to spend for your accessibility requirement. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we spent this exuberant fee to go to this penthouse and it was beautiful. I got in. I could use the bathroom. I could use the toilet. There's rails. There's everything I needed. Then I went to go in the balcony. Now, you're in the penthouse. You went in the balcony. The whole family was out there, but there was about a 300-mil step to get down. There's a little tiny step in the middle, but obviously a wheelchair can't get down steps. So I went into the receptionist and said, do you guys have a ramp? And this young girl said, no. I said, you said you're accessible. And she said, you got in, didn't you? I said, yeah, I did, but I can't get in the balcony. And she said, why do you need to go in the balcony? Like, why do you need to live like everybody else? You're in the penthouse. Why do you need to enjoy the view? Just sit inside and look at it is kind of the way I felt is what she was saying to me. So that started me thinking there is no criteria for accessible accommodation, as in anyone can call themselves accessible without meeting a standard. Is that still the case? That is still the case to today. Wow. And obviously, it's going to be poor business if someone calls you and says, are you accessible? It's poor business for the owner to say, no, we're not, because they're not going to get any sale. So, of course, everyone Mm -hmm. says they're accessible. So you even go to the sites like uh, you go to the sites What If or Booking dot com or Travel or whatever. You look at their accessibility. Now they gather their data from a central repository of information, but that information isn't up to date. That's what the hotel or the motel, the cafe, the restaurant, or whatever owner has told them that yeah, we're accessible. They might have an accessible toilet, but they're not fully accessible. So a lot of people with disability choose not to go out for that case. They don't have trustworthy information. They don't have any pictures or anything. They're only relying on what other people have said. Even TripAdvisor, for instance, some people thought accessible as to somebody may definitely not be accessible to somebody else. So they're they're relying on other people's experience. And I worked out very quickly that this is not good enough. So I started, and this was before any more study, I started wanting to assess places locally for their for the how accessible they were. So I went and saw a few motels and a few cafes. I went to a cafe and there was a step to get in. They did have an accessible entry, but there was no signage toward that. And otherwise, it was accessible. 
So the host, the uh, cafe owner came down and said to me, how accessible are we? I said, yeah, you're not. I did a star rating system here. I said, probably three to five. He uh, questioned that. He said, why only three to five? I said, well, you have a step to get in. And he said, so if you publish these results and we lose business due to you saying we're not accessible, he said, I'm going to sue you. And I went, ah, oh, so I can't afford that. So I thought, I need insurance if I'm doing this work. So I'm ringing around trying insurance, and nobody would insure me. Being a wheelchair user and even an ex-nurse was not enough to get to offer this advice. So I had to go and study access consultancy. So I am an access consultant. So I went and studied access consultancy, and I followed that up with studying a Master's of Disability and Inclusion. I'm now working on my PhD still, nearly done, towards inclusive practices for for venue owners. But that's what's given me the information to be able to do what I do. What we do now, so yeah, the main things I do to today, to today to access consultancy and I'll educate councils or I'm actually about to go down to a dream world and educate all their staff on inclusive practice. Because they're getting a lot, having a lot of people with wheelchairs post NDIS come out, and their staff. I'm not saying their staff at all are bad, but they just want their staff to understand inclusive practice better. That's amazing. I applaud them for that. I think that's brilliant, and I'm so glad they're doing this. But that's the kind of area I work a lot in now. What is different, and this is what's been frustrating me a lot lately. We have a board of uh, seven, actually, and that sounds like a lot, but there's a lot going on, and you'll hear why in a second. One thing that we started on a couple of years ago was starting to develop an app. Now, this app will be called My Access, and what that app does is catalogs all eat, play, stay, and eventually live. So eat is cafe, restaurant, play is mainly events, but also museums, galleries, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, stays, hotel, motel, B&B, live will be everything else like GP, gyms, churches, you know, that kind of stuff. And not only do we catalogue it, but I've gone around locally and taken photos of everything and talked about all the accessibility. And I've actually aligned it to the standards. So we have one level playing field. Now, I've got a, a lot of places on this app aren't fully accessible, but that's fine. This app is a vehicle to better education. What we're doing is we're more, let's just say you're going to search for a cafe. So you're going to eat and then you're going to search for your proximity or postcode or whatever. And then you can select from mobility requirements, many neurodiversity requirements, which have many. So that's easy read text or there's many requirements. I don't want to give away too much IP. And then there's sensory requirements. That's like hearing loops or tactile grounds, that kind of stuff. And then it'll catalog where you want to go. And there's many other things you can do from this app. And you'll see if you, if, when we get this app up and going. But this is cataloging. We have our rollout strategy through the whole of the state. So we have close to 30,000 businesses we need to assess. But we have ways and means to do that. And um, from that point, uh, we will do the whole of Australia. And then you'll be able to use many other functions with this app, but we're trying to build in a one-stop shop for disability. Now, this app is going to be very, very accessible, more accessible than anything else ever used, actually. So I won't even go into that too much, but it's going to be a very accessible app for everyone to be able to use. 
the issue that we are facing, and it's there's a reason this hasn't been done before. It's expensive. It's hard. It's taken me now about, I don't know, four years of eight-hour days trying to get this up and going, doing our – we've got developers. We've got, we're working with universities. We're working with many different stakeholders, with tourism bodies to get this going with the government. I suppose where we're at is the rollout's going to be fine. The more expensive part is the rollout. Because with that many venues, you need people to assess this info and take photos and everything that will be reviewed by myself and I have a small team of access consultants. So it's a small team, but myself and our other few access consultants will review all the photos and everything and we'll contact the venue owners if we have questions. Because data is key in this point. Data is what is so important. It has to be trustworthy. So not only am I doing it from an access consultancy point of view. A reliability point of view. That's what's so important. But even the app, to get the app up and going, and this is the part that I very badly need help in. Now, we're a DGR, which means we're a deductible gift recipient. So every dollar donated to us over $2 is a tax write-off, which is going to be very helpful for donations. But we need about $260,000 to just build the, the sticks of the app. Once the app's built, we're going to be working a lot with individual uh, regions, RTOs, regional tourism operators, for instance, to pay for their area to be assessed. Now, I'm going to pause you there because you blew over the 260000 You mentioned that. Everyone listening that wants to help right now, Five bucks, a hundred bucks, five grand, fifty grand. How do they help? So of the two hundred and sixty thousand dollars, we are as we're a DGR deductible gift recipient. All the money donated will be tax a tax deduction, and I would love people if they could see relevance in what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is one stop shop for accessibility to be able to help us. Now, if you go to our website, which is www.inclusionaccess.com.au, so one word, inclusionaccess.com.au, there is a Donate Here button. So that's where you get all tax receipts and everything for that donation. Now, whether people can help us by donating $2, we need a hundred and nearly 110,000 people to donate $2 to get this up and going, or whether you can donate $1,000. Amazing. We only need 26 people to donate that $1,000. That'll get this app up and going. But if people can help us with this, we are trying to build something for the community. Now, once again, this is nothing. uh, It's not a financial thing for us. I don't get paid for what I do anyway, but it's Inclusion Access is a charity. It is something that's been built to help society. It's a legacy that I'm trying to leave the world one day that we have something that everybody with disability, the one in five of us living with disability, can have something they own, they use, to rely on for their safety. To even add on to that, like I have two children, one sitting in a wheelchair and one was using hearing aids and a microphone, and we were limited as to what school they could go to, which school they could go to to get an education because of their two different disabilities in that space. So, you know, this is we're talking every day access. We're not talking if someone wants to one in every 10 years go on a holiday. So we're talking about everyday access. Well, that's what Liv is. is. Being- 
Libya's schools, Libya's churches, Libya's GPs, Libya's pharmacies. What banks can I use that have the accessibility that I require? There's not many banks out there with a hearing loop, for instance. So you could go, if you're deaf, and turn your T-switch on your hearing aid to hear what the teller's saying. We need all this stuff catalogued. And that's where we're going with this. So this it's a big app, it's a big ask, and that's why. So to tell the truth, to do the rollout, if we were to do it ourselves, we're looking at $1.2 million for the whole state to be assessed. We cannot obviously fundraise that much money. But if we get this app started, then we can use grants or other people can use grants or we can use governmental bodies now, we've been told governmentally that if we have the app, they will support us to do the rollout, which is amazing. Even then, if it goes to marketing and me to ask venues to contact me and they can take the photos required, I've done a massive training module on exactly what I need from venue owners that I can email them, all free for everyone. Well, the app will be free for everyone with disability and free for all venues. That's not what we're looking for money. We're not going that way. We're looking to build this catalogue. The revenue to continue hosting will be made through advertising or be made through, you know, people buying my access work, for instance, or one of our team access consultants to come out and make their place more accessible. I mean, I I can only give so much IP for free. If they want it 100% accessible, they can buy that. Oh, Josh, I just, you know, listening to you talk and hearing your story It is a really good example of how we can put all of our energy into finding a purpose that will leave a legacy for those long after we leave this world. Yeah. And there's been so many moments that I'm thinking, how did you get back up and how did you find the fight and how did you find a way to be like, well, this is all I can do. This is what I'm going to do. You know, that constantly was a story in my head as I was listening to yours thinking, man, this guy's got some serious, serious resilience and and ability to bounce back. Like I just want to honour that space because I talk to a lot of people and have talked to a lot of people in my travels and listening to you, I just – I really admire that resilience that you have and and that ability you have in your mindset. And like you said, it doesn't happen every day. It's not there all the time, but you're able to recognise it and, and, and find a way to forage forwards when you need to. But we do have to come to an end and we do have to pull the whole podcast together. And the way that we do that is by asking you who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Oh, that's a really, really hard question. The truth is uh, my grandfather actually He's taught me to be resilient. He um, He's no longer with us. He only died a couple of years back. But he was a man that lived through the Depression, through very poor family, through a lot of adversity, not disability, but other forms of adversity. And just to see how positive he was, but not only positive, but every negative thing I would say to him, he would twist on his head straight away and make me laugh and make me go, what am I whinging about? What do I have to whinge about? And, I, and actually, when you say belly laugh, he would laugh and his belly would shake up and down. <laughs> <laughs> that would make me laugh <laughs> alone. <laughs> so I still think to those days a lot and that gets me through. And then again, my wife on her day-to-day, is a, she's a very funny lady. 
and she will drop some crazy funniness in the in the middle of nothing. I'm like, where'd that come from? And that makes me Bella laugh. It is humor is important. And it is important to to recognize who around you can actually keep you at this place. And yeah, between the thoughts of my grandfather, who was the biggest belly laugher, and my wife, I'm I'm laughing quite a bit. And like you just said, how do we seek that out more? You know, how do we how do we get more laughter in our day? Thank you so much, Josh, for coming on and giving up your time today. No worries, Ellie. Thank you. Great. It always blows me away when I speak to someone that has so much going on in their life, yet they are able to channel their energy into giving to others. I can't imagine what Josh has been through, what the dark days feel like, what realities he's had to face on a daily, weekly or monthly basis. What I love is his passion for making this country a better place. We will pop all of his information in the show notes, so definitely go on and check them out because I'm sure there is a way that we can all help. Have a great week, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you next Monday. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week, we will return with another episode. 